This is a talk by Joel titled "Who Are You Really?" recorded May twenty first, nineteen ninety two, at Miranda Bookstore in Palo Alto, California. So it's my pleasure to introduce Joel. Oh, thank you. Uh, I don't know what too much to add to that. I live in Eugene now, and uh, I have, uh, with some other people, I set up a Center for Sacred Sciences. Which is a small organization uh, that is uh, open to the public. We have Sunday meetings at eleven o'clock. Anybody's welcome. We have a magnificent library, which Jennifer, who you'll probably meet, she's around here someplace, uh, operates. Hmm? I knew I forgot something. <laughs> yes, can't forget Jennifer. We wouldn't be here. <laughs> and um, and then we also uh, provide a uh, a more focused group for practitioners in Eugene. Uh, and there's some literature about that free out there on the table. If you're interested in the Center for Sacred Science, you can pick that up. I don't want to take up the time now talking about it. Uh, I'm also not going to talk much about myself. I wrote a book just so I don't have to talk about myself. If you're interested, it's called Make It Through the Gate. That's out there. That one's on sale, I think. Uh, but I don't think they're charging too much for it. If you're interested, uh, uh, George mentioned Franklin Merrill Wolf. Uh, he was a mystic philosopher. Who died? What? Three years? No, four. Three, four years ago, I guess. Yeah, eighty-five.、Uh, he lived in Lone Pine, California. For those of you who have read my book,、uh, I I visited him at one point in my book, and you'll get a very good description of him. And then after uh, the uh, the book ends, I went back and I lived at his ranch in Lone Pine for a year and a half.、Uh, and this is、uh, my connection with Aleeks and with Dr. Wolf and so forth. And Dr. Wolf was a magnificent. Uh, mystic and philosopher.、Uh, I, do they have his books here? Might as well plug his books. No, they are not. Oh, well, if you can get a hold of one, Pathways Through to Space is the great one to start、yeah. with.、Um, but as I said, I'm really not here to talk about uh, myself. Uh, I'm here to talk about you. And the、uh, the normal way of proceeding for someone in my position is to give a talk, and then you all ask me questions. But I'm going to reverse that. I'm going to ask you questions, and I'm going to ask you one particular question, which is the topic of the evening's talk: Who are you? Who are you really? In other words, not who you are in terms of what your job is—you're a lawyer, or you're a secretary, or you're a dentist, and so forth. But who, or we could rephrase it: What are you? Who has any idea? I'm throwing this open. I want some response here. Does anybody know? I want I want to sweep the room with the camera. Not one hand has gone up here. Now, I, I, I've asked this question.、Uh, oh, he knows. This gentleman knows. It's funny. I was just talking about Mr. Robert. We are the consciousness of God. He's got it. What、That's、are you doing、it. here? <laughs> Come on up here. You take my you take my seat. So、we are a reflection. Our soul is a reflection of God. Oh wait a minute! Wait a minute! You, you had it right the first time. <laughs> San Sidim, a great、uh, Zen master down in L.A., says, "First thought, best thought." You had it right the first time.、Okay. We are the consciousness of God. Well, now you, you you can leave now. <laughs> we can all leave now. <laughs>、uh, we'll、God? get to that. We'll get to that. Which God? Uh, uh,、um, but it's very interesting. Think about this. Probably the word "I," aside from prepositions like "the" and so forth, is the word you most commonly use as English speakers. 
not only in your conver outward conversations with other people, but inwardly. You listen to the chatter in your mind. I like this. I don't like this. I want this. I don't want that. Ooh, that looks like a good job for me. Oh, I don't think I'd like that kind of job. Always this reference to I. It goes on in your head. Is this not true? But what does that word refer to? And it's, it's amazing how few people in their lives ever stop to consider that. Who are you really? What are you doing here? I mean, it leads to other questions. What are you doing here? Maybe you could ask, what should I be doing here? And then you can go on from there and say, well, what is all this doing here to begin with? It's a huge mystery if you stop and think about it. And, you know, in this, uh, we lead our lives without being aware of this. We might say, so what? I mean, who cares? Why should we care who we really are? We seem to, you know, make it through, muddle through somehow. I want to read you something here. And, oops, I want to, uh, I'm going to read you a couple things tonight. And I hope you don't mind. One of the things that I insist upon uh, for my students, people who study with me closely, is that they read the great mystics. And this bookstore is full of uh, great mystics, and uh, libraries are full of them and so forth. And it's only by getting that kind of background that you can tell, for instance, whether or not I'm a charlatan. I always ask people to judge what I say, and there, there is some way to judge. There are two ways. One is your own experience, but that you have to take with a grain of salt, because one of the things mystics say is that somehow there's something uh, misperceived in most people's experience. But it's still along a path, you always have to be uh, judging the teaching against your own experience, being open to a new teaching and a new way of experience, but also bring it back to your own experience. But the other great um, safeguard we have is reading the mystics of the past. Uh, Christian mystics, Buddhist mystics, Hindu mystics, Taoist mystics, it doesn't matter. I found, and I think you will find if you dig into it, that they really all are saying the same thing. Not just in a, in a vague, amorphous way about we're all children of God or there's only one or something like that, but in very specific ways. So, uh, given that little preface, I want to read you something that St. Teresa of Avila, who's one of my favorites, uh, wrote. She says, It is no small pity that through our own fault we do not understand ourselves or know who we are. Would it not be a sign of great ignorance, my daughters, the person were asked who he was and could not say and had no idea who his father or his mother was or from what country he came. Though that is a great stupidity, our own is incomparably greater if we make no attempt to discover what we are and only know that we are living in these bodies and have a vague idea that we possess souls. As to what good qualities there may be in our souls or who dwells within them, or how precious they are, those are things which we seldom consider. I don't know. She lived in the 17th century, 16th, 1600s. It applies today, doesn't it? How little we consider this. How little we think about this. And she's hinting at something here. In Christian terms, and one of the things you have to realize when you read the mystics of various traditions, each are speaking within a cosmology, within a framework, so their exact words won't be the same. But she's hinting at something that in Christian terms, when she talks about 
finding out who dwells within. Who dwells within. There's some secret in our souls, as she puts it, in ourselves, getting to know ourselves. There's some great precious secret there. Now, in a Christian tradition, of course, who dwells within is God. And in uh, Christianity, as in all uh, religious traditions, there's a variation, a gradation of understanding of what is meant by the term God. When I talk, I'm always talking about mystics of traditions, not theologians necessarily, or doctors of the church, or your local fundamentalist preacher down on the corner. Uh, and that's not to knock them, that's just to say that's not who I'm talking about. Uh, the Christian mystical idea of God is not a big daddy in the sky, which is a very common general Christian idea. Uh, it's not a big daddy who sort of, uh, you know, created the world and set it going and watches over you and punishes you when you do things bad and rewards you when you do things good. The Christian mystical idea of God is quite different. If you read Hildegard of Bingen, for instance, she writes about God as the spirit that permeates all things, living in the rocks and the trees and so forth and so on. That's the imminent aspect of God or idea of God. There's also the transcendent God, the God that you cannot say anything about, really. That all our ideas like that God is like a father. Jesus compared God to a father. It's always in, 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 uh, as a metaphor. God is like a father, the way a father is uh, loving and kind and so forth. He never says God is a big daddy in the sky. In fact, he's the one who said, where is the kingdom of God? Where do you find it? You find it within. This is where St. Teresa gets her teaching from. You find it within. Other Christian mystics, for instance, uh, 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 John Scotus Eraginus, described God as nothing. Meaning literally no thing, not anything that you could uh, wrap a concept around or a word around. Without attributes is another way of saying it. Infinite, without boundaries. And also in, in all mystical traditions, always God is the ultimate reality, the ground reality, out of which everything is born and arises, so to speak. So what, uh, what St. Teresa is pointing to is the reason this question is so important is because we are missing some great secret that everyone carries within them. Everyone has the possibility of finding out. Now, let's... Let's go on here. Uh, what about mystics of other traditions? Here's Ananda Moyamai, who's a, she was a great uh, Hindu mystic of this century. She died uh, during this century. She says, to realize the self is to realize God, and to know God is to know oneself. You think St. Teresa could have said that? This is what I mean by, by not just in a vague way these mystics are all saying the same thing. We're just going to get a taste of this tonight. But this is really exactly what she's saying. Some gentleman asked, which God? This is a really good question. Who is the God Anandamoyama is talking about? She's not talking about the uh, exoteric forms of God that appear in uh, Hindu mythology. Uh, Indra and Shiva and so forth. And in generally in Hinduism, there's a, there's a deeper understanding of this mystical core. She's talking about Brahman. Brahman. What is Brahman? How is Brahman described? Shankar describes Brahman as without attributes. 
cannot be grasped by thought or concepts. One without a second, very important one, one without a second, this is indicating that there is only Brahman. There's no, nothing other than Brahman. There's nothing apart from Brahman. Nothing stands outside or apart from Brahman. One without a second. Sat Chit Ananda is another Hindu description. Conscious, being consciousness bliss. And even that's saying too much. You see, already, you know, our tendency, our minds are, have to put something up there. But being, just the, the basic being, the fundamental, ultimate reality of things. Consciousness. Consciousness is the equivalent of the word spirit, which is a, a good English and European word, which has died out in our culture because we're materialists and we have no use for it. What's taken its place is the word consciousness. So when Hildegard talks about the spirit, this is equivalent of saying consciousness, and we'll, we'll get to that a little later, exactly. That's another good word to investigate. What does consciousness mean? Uh, so the, she's talking about here the same thing St. Teresa of Avila is talking about. The self-knowledge is knowledge of God. To know yourself is to know God. It's a great secret in here. Now notice, I, I got to tell you, uh, Ananda Mayumai did not read Teresa Vavila. I guarantee it. These mystics are from different times, different places, different cultures. I hope this impresses you, and not just what I'm saying, but investigate for yourself. It impressed the hell out of me, I got to tell you. And I got to tell you something else. I was a hard-nosed materialist. Ten years ago, a little more than ten years ago, if any of you told me I'm going to go to this workshop and this crazy guy Joel's going to talk, he's talking about mysticism and stuff, I would say, grow up, come on, face reality, you know, it's time for you to, and, you know, none of you are teenagers here anymore, you know. And what, one of the things that, and the various things happened to me personally, and that I, made me start to investigate, and one of the things I began to realize is, how is this possible? All these brilliant philosophers of all these cultures, not one of them agrees. When I was younger, I was interested in philosophy a little bit. And I, you know, I'd read Descartes. I'd say, yeah, he's right. He's right, you know. And then I'd read the next guy. i say, no, he's right. You know, Hegel, he's right. No, Kant's right. No, who's right? When you get to the mystics, you start saying, wait a minute. Same thing coming up over and over. Here's Al-Ghazali, a Sufi from Islam. Knowledge of self is the key to the knowledge of God. According to the saying, whoso knoweth himself knoweth his Lord. Know yourself, you know God. And again, what is the God of the Sufis? Not necessarily the God of, of a, a, an average Muslim you'll run into. Well, maybe you have more of an idea of a big daddy in the sky. I don't, I'm not that familiar with average Muslims, but Sufis have a quite different idea. Here's Abin Arabi's description of God. The, uh, God cannot be conceived. The utmost knowledge we can have regarding him is the negative qualities, such as there is nothing like him. Your honored Lord is free from the qualities which they attribute to him. Without attributes, right? In Islam, one of the fundamental um, sayings, the way you become a Muslim, is you say, La ilaha illallah. It means, for most Muslims, it means there is only, uh, Allah is the only God. There are no gods but Allah. In the Sufi interpretation, it means there is nothing but Allah. We could say Allah is one without a second, for instance. Same thing, same idea. And, uh, and God is also called by the Sufis Al-Haq, the reality. 
this idea of the ultimate reality. Bear with me, only one or two more here. Wei Ning, the founder of Zen Buddhism, says, Our very self-nature is the Buddha. Apart from this nature, there is no other Buddha. And the Buddha here, of course, is not the historical Sakyamuni Buddha who lived and walked the, you know, in India in 2500 or 500 BC. This is the Buddha of which the Lakanvatara Sutra says, when appearances and names are put away and all discrimination ceases, that which remains is the true and essential nature of things. And as nothing can be predicated as to the nature of the essence, it is called simply the suchness of reality. So here we have four different traditions, different mystics, never read each other, didn't study each other, uh, and they've all discovered and are trying to testify to something here. If we know who we are, we know the ultimate reality of things. We know what in Western traditions is called God, divine, sacred, bliss, happiness, all those words. And the other thing about it is they all testify there truly is no separate self. In a funny way, whatever you think you are, you ain't. It's not that you are, some gentleman said, well, we're, each one of our souls is a reflection of God. Not from a mystic's point of view. It's not just merely a reflection of God. In a relative sense, we can start to approach it that way and talk about it that way. But ultimately, it's not a reflection of God at all. Now, let's face it, this sounds bizarro, doesn't it? I mean, if you, it's great here sitting in the Minerva bookstore, and when you go out in the street and you face that traffic and driving home, say, this is nuts, you know? And this is a question that we really have to face if we're going to get serious about mysticism, about a spiritual path from a mystic's point of view. It's certainly one I faced. And I was, uh, those of you who read my book somewhat, you know, at the time when I got on my spiritual path, I was living and working in Hollywood, in the film business, a very high-pressured business, a very unmystical business. And I would go home at night, and I'd read these things, and I started to meditate, and then I'd come to my office in the morning, and I would look out over the parking lots and stuff, and I'd say, I mean, this is crazy. You know, this stuff is from the centuries ago, and I mean, how can this really be real? These people must be mad. And many people in our culture have explained mystics as being mad. You know, they're psychotic, they're this and that, and so forth. And in their own time, most mystics were thought to be mad. If you read the Gospels, it's very interesting. Jesus, is, not only his enemies thought he was mad, they kept saying, the guy's possessed, he's got a devil, why do you listen to him? His own family thought he was nuts and went to grab him. And take them home and stop making this ruckus, you know. One of my favorite stories is the one of the Buddha. The Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree and then he got enlightened. And then he spent something like three months just, you know, blissed out. He had no real intention of teaching or uh, idea of it. There was really nothing to teach. But eventually began to realize there was suffering in the world and so forth. So he decided he would try to teach. And he came down from the Bodhi tree and he, the first person he met... I think it was a merchant or somebody, walking along the road. And he announced to him, I have conquered the world. You know, this is what Jesus said too, I have overcome the world. Remember that? Same, same thing. He said, I have conquered the world. And the story is, the, the guy just took the other road. 
<laughs> I always think of, I grew up in New York, I don't know if any of you have ever been in New York, but on New York subways, uh, quite often, uh, you're in the between stops, and then it pulled in the next stop, and of course the doors open, everybody gets out of the car. You know? <laughs> and I, I think of Buddha, you know, getting on the subway saying, I have conquered the world, and the next stop everybody would be gone, you know. Uh, it's all over in all traditions when you read about the mystics of traditions. People have asked the same question. It's a very good question to ask. It's a very good question to grapple with. Because if you really see that this is this serious, this radical, the teaching, that you will ask that question, are these people mad? It means you've really begun to understand how radical this teaching is. How radical this vision is, what's trying to be communicated. So... Ask the question. I encourage you to ask the question. This question is also the essential question, and it's in relation to this question that you understand all the other practices uh, of mystical traditions. Meditation, working with precepts, love and compassion, all these things. They're all aids and ways designed to help you basically inquire about this question, to investigate this question. Meditation trains the mind, trains attention, so that it can stand still enough, long enough, to ask the question, who am I? To observe. Because the question doesn't, the answer to the question doesn't come from anything I'm ever going to say, or anything you're going to read in any Buddhist sutras, or any New Testaments, or any place. The only place the question, the answer to the question comes from is yourself. And this is another thing that, that all mystics agree on. And one good way to tell a mystic from a non-mystic. Shankara said it the best. He said uh, he was a great Hindu mystic from 700 AD. He said, you can learn about the teachings from the lips of your teacher, but the only way that you yourself will know is through your own experience. Your own experience. And all mystical practices are about setting up ways to help you investigate this. Even precepts, even the Ten Commandments. I'm not going to go into this tonight. But they aren't about, from a mystic's point of view, some laws that were written in stone. They're little experiments you can do in your life that bring the sense of self to the fore so that you can look at it. That's really what they're about. So you could say that the whole <coughs> mystical path is this quest for self-realization. Now, self-realization has become in our culture through uh, Hindu influence primarily some sort of big mystery. Self-realization, you join the self-realization fellowship or this or that. Is someone self-realized? Are they God-realized? There's a very good word, uh, reason the word realization is chosen. And, and it is a big mystery. That's why it's called mysticism. But it's not that big a mystery in the sense that we can't uh, make sense out of these words and start to understand what's really being talked about in a more concrete kind of way. The kind of knowledge, of self-knowledge, that the mystics are talking about is not intellectual knowledge. It's not like going to uh, um, studying psychology over at Stanford and finding out how the psyche works and so forth and so on. It's not coming away with a, a new theory that you have about yourself or about selves or the world or whatever. It's not even strictly uh, speaking experience in the sense that we think of experience as something that comes and goes. So you can have great spiritual experiences and mystical experiences and blissful experiences and all sorts of experiences. They will come and go. There is no such thing as an experience that hangs around in that sense of the word. The other thing we 
usually mean when we say experience is something about a subject and object. I, I've come here to uh, Stanford. I experienced Stanford. I experienced Stanford. There's a relationship here in the experience. This is not what mystics are talking about, even though sometimes mystics will use the word experience because it's closer to experience than to an intellectual understanding. But the word realization gives us some clue here. And let me give you an example. Supposing you're, uh, it's, a, uh, it's late in the evening, and the light is dim, and you're walking down the street, and uh, let's say an alley. I don't know if you have alleys in Stanford. Do you have any threatening alleys in Stanford? <laughs> it all looks so nice. You go up to San Francisco, maybe. And, and here comes this uh, fellow down the street, a bearded guy like this gentleman over here. And he looks a little threatening at first. And you're all alone, and he's, yeah, there he is. He's looking threatening. <laughs> <laughs> and you start to react and you start to get a little nervous and a little anxious and you get up closer and closer and suddenly, what, what is your name? Mark. And you suddenly say, Mark! Oh, Mark, I haven't seen you since college. You've grown a beard since then. Oh, how wonderful to see you. Now notice, this is realizing something. You had misperceived the situation. You had been fooled by the situation. You thought a stranger was approaching you. And you got frightened. And at some point, you can't say that anything particularly changed. It's not like he took his beard off. or Do you know what I mean? It wasn't like he was wearing a disguise. You suddenly realized, he's not a stranger. I know this person. He's Mark. And everything changes, right? This is much more how the word realization is meant and used by mystics. It's not a new knowledge in the sense that you're going to learn something new. It's realizing something about your experience, just as it is now. There's nothing wrong with anything right now. Truly speaking, you don't have to do anything to become enlightened. You just have to realize it. So why don't you realize it? Why don't you? A lot of teachers teach this way, and it's the truth. I mean, I think of Krishnamurti, you know, he doesn't like any uh, practices, meditation practices, stuff like that. I don't listen to any gurus and all that. Just realize, you're enlightened. Just realize it, you know? And there are quite a few teachers, uh, Hindu teachers and so forth, that will speak that way. Really direct teaching. A lot of people, I think it's become actually quite popular now. It's the absolute truth. I'm not knocking the teaching at all. There's one problem with it. And this is the problem with it. The Buddha once got up in front of a thousand monks his monks have been studying for a long time. And he had a flower, and he twirled the flower. And he looked out over the thousand monks. And one, Kapasha, way in the back, smiled. And the Buddha said, Kapasha, you got it. The other 999 didn't get it. Out of compassion, he had to give teachings and practices and suggestions and ways to how you might realize this for yourself. So it is true when you hear a teacher say, you don't need any of this meditation stuff, you don't need it, just realize it. Okay, fine. Just realize it. Go ahead. It, that's a wonderful way to approach it. It's a wonderful way to think about it. And it will lead you on your own to practices. And in fact, if you read Krishnamurti's journals, he didn't do any formal meditation practice but he had a steady, concentrated attention. He writes about how he went through the streets of London just trying to see what everything was. 
Most of us don't have that kind of attention and concentration. So we need meditative practices to build that, to help us uh, be able to do that. On my path, I used to read about these things, everything is God. And, and, not just, and I took this seriously. I mean, when I realized the mystics took it seriously, there's nothing other than God. And I would sit there with a book or something. That's a heavy book, I won't pick that up. And I'd say, okay, I don't see God. I see a book, I'm sorry. <laughs> I would look, I'd put it down in front of me, I'd meditate on it. No, this is great. I mean, I was, you know, I was naive, and, but it's better to be naive and not sophisticated. It's better to go directly for the experience. If you do get interested in reading mystics and so forth, I highly recommend, don't read mystics the way you read, uh, you know, Descartes or Kant, and you have to memorize it and, and write essays about it. Read a little bit, stop, and, and say, okay, what are they talking about here? And you look and see if you can't see. It's that constant knocking, as Jesus said. Knock and it shall be open. He didn't mean you just go knock and it's going to fly right open, you're going to walk right in. <laughs> but after a while, you know, you keep knocking and you keep knocking. And if you have the curiosity and if it gets to you and if you and along the path, there are many other things to learn and many, there's a lot of other enrichment to have. You're often drawn deeper and deeper. Until sometimes you get to a point that I got to where uh, I was just sick of the whole thing, but it was too late. <laughs> there was nothing else to do. I'd investigated reality to the point where I realized that if there was any chance of happiness, I mean real happiness, it was, you know, it was here. And uh, that sort of makes you lose your taste a little bit for other things. Not, not that you lose your taste. Like, I smoke, by the way, and I drink uh, beer, and uh, I live with a lovely young woman. I'm not a renunciate at all. I don't want anybody to get a false impression. <clears throat> but I don't think any of those things are going to make me happy. And it's, that's the key thing here. And so if, you, if this, if this uh, bug gets to you, if you get the sense, so to speak, it's like a detective story. And then it's the teachings start to become your own. It's your own path and your own pursuit and your own following. And then sometimes these, some of the practice, meditation practices, you know, they're, it's a little bit like doing gymnastics in the beginning anyway. It's you know, hard to go down to the gym and work out all the time. But, but really, once, you, once it really becomes your own, you want to. You start to really start to have insights. You really start to see in small ways how the mystics of the teaching are true. And all mystics have said this. The, each, the Buddha's dying words were, each must struggle for themselves. The Buddha's only point the way. You can't leave it up to somebody else. George mentioned, I say in this context, uh, Franklin, uh, Dr. Wolf used to give these, what he calls inductions, and he also, I'm glad I remember this, he also seemed to indicate if you come to my workshop tomorrow, you're going to get an induction. If you get an induction, it's up to you. I don't give inductions. Uh, <clears throat> but I actually once asked Dr. Wolf about this induction business. People, to explain it a little bit, people would be in his presence, and they would get this very blissful sort of feeling and, and you know, transcendent kind of feeling and stuff, and to the point sometimes where he and his wife would advise them not to drive, you know, to wait a little while. <laughs> Uh, and I asked them, I said, I said, what is this business of induction? Have you ever really known anybody to get enlightened from induction? And he laughed. He had this marvelous way of laughing. And he said, no, no. He said, this is the, the he says, you know how you get a donkey to go? You have a carrot and a stick. He says, this is the carrot. And the stick is suffering. And you don't have to create suffering for people. Some gurus want to do that. But everybody has enough suffering in their lives. Uh, but it is true along a spiritual path. You do get a taste of what the mystics are talking about. You do get insights into 
the nature of impermanence, for instance, and, and those things. You really, and you also, perhaps the most important, really start to become free. Free from your own compulsions and conditioning and whatnot. There's a, a tremendous amount of enrichment to be had on a spiritual path. Even if you could just realize right now, I mean, I wouldn't discourage anybody from doing it, but don't, don't get discouraged. There's a lot to see. Life's an adventure. Okay. But now we have to ask the question, what is so hot about self-realization? I call this gnosis, by the way. It's a kind of technical term. Gnosis is this kind of knowledge. It isn't conceptual, isn't experiential. It's something else I borrowed. It's an ancient Greek term, and I like that because it's not associated with any particular tradition. Uh, and I sort of have a generic kind of teaching. But what's so hot about it? I mean, and a lot. This is a legitimate question too. Okay, so you self-realize, you know God, you know ultimate reality, <laughs> and so what? You know. How's that going to help you uh, get a job, right? Very good. I used to work at, uh, I, for a year or so, I worked at the Bodhi Tree Bookstore in Los Angeles, which is equivalent to this bookstore. Uh, and uh, there was a book there called Winning Through Enlightenment. <laughs> you can't make it ordinarily. You can't get you know, the Jaguar and uh, the penthouse, but through enlightenment, you'll be able to get that stuff. Another kind of carrot. Another kind of carrot, right. Okay, let's see what some of the mystics have said about this. Jesus said, If you remain with my teaching, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And know, by the way, you know, the, the New Testament is written in Greek. Jesus probably didn't speak Greek, but it was written in Greek. And the word know here is gnosis. It's the root gnosis. Know, if you stay with my teaching, in other words, if you're persistent, and not just listen to my teaching, or I'm going to tell you and you're going to go off and do, but you do the practices. You knock, you keep knocking. Stay with my teaching. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Free from what? Does anybody know? Somebody must have been brought up a Christian here. Well, what's the Christian teaching? Yes, you, that's, that's good. Okay. Is any? Sin. Sin, right. You got it right, exactly. Sin. And, and what, what, is, what is the problem with sin? What are the wages of sin? Suffering and death, right? The wages, no, this is, this is straightforward Christian doctrine. <clears throat> the wages of sin are suffering and death. What does sin mean from a mystic's point of view? It doesn't mean you did something naughty in your, in your bathroom the other night or something. You know what? <laughs> I think it means that you don't know. You don't know the truth. You don't you know, know the... It's a misperception. Actually, uh, one etymological reading of the word is, uh, comes from an archery term, to miss the mark. Be ignorant. To misperceive something, not to understand something. To know the truth, and it will make you free from sin. Free from suffering and death. Now, that look, this is, gets bizarre, right? I mean, do they really mean this? What does that mean? Well, let's see what some of the other teachers have said here. The Upanishads, the great Hindu classics say, When a man knows God, he is free. His sorrows have an end, and birth and death are no more. I guarantee he didn't read Jesus. Right? Actually, it couldn't have been that way, but Jesus didn't read the Upanishads. I doubt it very much. I can't guarantee it, but I doubt it. I don't think they taught the Upanishads. I don't think the rabbis in the temple taught the Upanishads. The Buddha taught, the unshakable deliverance of the heart, that verily is the object of holy life. That is the essence, that is the goal. And what is the unshakable, what is this unshakable deliverance from? 
It's from cyclic existence, and cyclic existence is suffering and death. And in the Buddhist and the Hindu cosmology, it's not only uh, one death, it's many deaths, and born and dying, and born and dying, and all the suffering in between. Isn't this the same teaching? I mean, this is crazy, right? How could this be? Now, again, we have to ask this question about, this is what Mystic said about, you're going to know God and the ultimate reality and all your questions are going to be answered in, uh, in, the, in the ultimate sense. I've got to say one thing. Sometimes people think mystics know everything in the relative sense. There's a wonderful story about Muhammad about this. Muhammad was uh, going through some vineyards and he was very interested in how the grapes are grown and he's asking the grape growers you know, how, how they do this. And, and they said, but, but you're the prophet of God. And he laughed. He said, yeah, but I don't know anything about growing grapes. Tell me about <laughs> growing grapes, you know. Uh, so we have to be careful about this. But now again, this, is, you have to, this raises this red flag. Are these people nuts? And it's very important here, by the way, to realize whether you agree with them or not or think they're nuts, end up thinking they're nuts or whatever, but to realize that they are this radical because we're always in great danger of reducing the teaching to our own understanding. One of the things I always say is... Uh, but is our greatest obstacle. We say, yes, but. Yes, but they couldn't have mean that. Yeah. Meant that. And get rid of the but. They do mean this. The higher the teaching, the more literally you can take it. People lock into lower level teachings about rebirth and karma and all that. And this is Hindu cosmology and it's got some wonderful um, points about it. It's a very sophisticated cosmology when you really get into it. But the whole point about the Buddha's teaching, the Hindu t- teachings, is to transcend all this. Somebody once said, uh, a Hindu once said, you know, we teach karma and the business of rebirth and stuff like that to motivate people to get out of all this. And Westerners, you guys say, oh, what a great relief. I'll be born again. I don't have to worry about it. Uh, So, you know, I'm I'm fascinated by different cosmologies and so forth. But a lot of people think you're going to learn the whole new cosmology. You're just going to enter a whole other world of delusion in a certain sense. Um, it help, if you're into a particular teaching, you have to know something about the cosmology to understand the teaching. But it's about transcending all this, cutting through all this, coming to some deeper level of understanding, an ultimate level of understanding. And that knowledge is what frees. It frees you from cyclic existence, frees you from sin, free, whatever, whatever uh, cosmology you want to talk about it. it. Frees you from suffering and death we can get a little idea of what this might mean by considering that if there really is not a you, then you ask the question, well, who actually suffers? Or who actually dies? You might think about this, just for instance, take death particularly. Uh, It's more sharper and dramatic. When you're worried and concerned about death, this is a good time to ask the question. You say, I'm going to die. Maybe you've gone to the doctor in some suspicious spot on your x-ray or something, and you get all worried about your mortality, or maybe just generally you're getting old, you know, like most of us here with a little gray hair, and you look in the mirror and you say, hmm, how many years do I got left? Who's the I there? Who is actually going to die here? A large part of the spiritual path is investigating questions like this. It's not a denial that there isn't what we call bodily death. It's going to be never decay or something like that. And people are always impressed by saints' bodies that don't decay for, you know, six months. And, uh, <laughs> and eventually they decay, so what, six months? Or that's a blink in eternity, for Christ's sake. You know? uh, 
I once ran into a little community where they believed that uh, if you thought right, you would literally bodily not die. And, and anybody who disagreed with them, they called deathists. You were a deathist. Uh, that's not what's being talked about here. And, and then the suffering. Isn't, uh, this is trickier and more subtle. And a lot of people think that um, um, the spiritual life is becoming a stoic, you know, and babies can die in front of you and you won't respond and this and that because you're above and beyond it all. This is not, in fact, this is the ego's, you know, great dream. This is the ego's idea that the ego is God. This is the reverse of the mystic's teaching. The mystic's teaching is you don't exist. There is no ego. Not that you, the ego, is God. Quite the opposite. And a lot of people approach the spiritual path from the idea as a personal escape from suffering. And the, and the Buddha, the Mahayana Buddhists, warn against that. It's not an escape by any means. It's a, uh, it's a, a demand to actually face reality. And many, for instance, Buddhist teachings particularly, uh, focus on death as a meditative practice and as a path. And then Westerners don't like that one. Oh, you know, I don't want to, give me one of those loving kindness meditations. <laughs> don't give me the death meditation. Uh, Brother Stendhal Rast, who's a Christian mystic and monk, a contemporary, uh, I once heard him talking, he says he puts death on his forehead and carries death around. It's not about turning away from death and from suffering. It's not about an escape. It's about going through it, coming to the bottom of it, really discovering what it is. So you could say, really, to sum it up here, a mystical path is really uh, both a challenge and a quest. The challenge is, this is what mystics say. There is no separate self. There is nothing but God, Brahman, Buddha nature, whatever you want to call it. And if you believe there is, go find that self. And that is what the path is made up about. That's the quest part. If you believe there is a self, go in search of that self. Answer the question that I asked you in the very beginning of this talk. And what mystics say, if you really diligently search for that self, and concretely search for that self, and in every moment search for that self, you will discover that it just doesn't exist. There is no self. Uh, the Tibetan Buddhists have a lovely way of putting it. It's like someone who has a farmer who has a prize bull, and uh, some thieves run off with the prize bull. And the neighbors come and say to the farmer, last night some thieves ran off with your prize bull. And he doesn't believe them, intellectually believes them, but he's so attached to that bull that he's not really going to be convinced until he goes out and he searches his whole property. And he goes down to all the gullies where the bull likes to hide, he knows the bull, bull likes to hide, and so forth. And he searches every inch of the property. And then he knows there is no bull. So even if you understand the teachings intellectually, it's not going to do you uh, the least bit of good. It has to be that kind of conviction born out of your own search. And I have to say something else. That's a negative way of putting it. And the Buddhists particularly like to put it negatively. They don't like to give you any idea of some god to grab onto. Everything is negatively put in Buddhism. It doesn't mean it's negative at all. The greatest suffering of our lives isn't the suffering that we experience. And by the way, suffering here means everything from the little dissatisfactions that you have when you can't find a parking space and you have to drive around the block to the biggies, the cancer and the da-da-da-da-da. 
covers the whole range, all that discontent, restlessness, disease with life. All that can be ended in the sense there is no one there experiencing all that. But the biggest suffering that we have in this condition of delusion, sin, misperception, however you want to put it, is what we miss. And the other side of the testimony of the mystics is that it's not just a cessation of suffering in the sense, oh, well, at least nothing bad is going to happen. That the real nature of the world is bliss and joy and happiness. All the time. That doesn't mean you're going to be jumping up around like somebody, a Hare Krishna follower, you know, singing uh, bhajans all day. But it means underneath, there's a fundamental understanding that's, I think, put the most beautifully in the, in the uh, Torah and the Jewish Bible. Uh, God finished the creation and looked around, this is metaphorical now, looked around and said, Katova. It's a word that means it's good. Katova. Katova. Could you pass it on, please? Mark's behind you, someone. Katova. Katova. And so it's not an end to emotion. Emotions come and go. Anybody wants to thinks they can stop life with some particular emotion, this is the ego's dream. I'll walk into that good feeling and that'll be the end. But it's that fundamental understanding, that fundamental happiness, that fundamental joy that is, in Hildegard's terms, that spirit that just runs through everything. It's, it's, not, it's always just there, obvious, to be seen. It doesn't require any particular effort. So this is the mystical path from my perspective. Uh, and I've tried to give you a little hint of the teachings of uh, other traditions uh, and tried to tell you from at least my perspective and these traditions that I've been reading uh, the fundamental nature of it, what it's about. And it really comes back always to this question, who are you? Who are you? And that's why you're the only one who can ever answer it. How do we do time Not bad. Good. Take a few questions. Yes, if anybody wants to ask any questions of me. Isn't it, isn't it who are you as seen from some perspective? No. In the sense that a mystic would see it in a certain way, I may see it very differently. No. I, and I, now, relatively speaking, we can talk that way. I would say, yes, I just said this is from my perspective. I mean, if no, you don't have a perspective. This is this is no. This is what makes it different. This is why it's not a different perspective. Uh, it's it's well put this way. Um, in Buddhism, for instance, and in many mystical traditions, what you work for is calm, abiding, and meditation—a state of tranquility, a certain perspective in which you see things. You develop mindfulness. It's kind of a sometimes called witnessing, and it it is a different perspective, and then you see things differently. But the ultimate end of Buddhism isn't to abide in calm abiding, it's to abide nowhere. No abiding. And we might turn around and say, who? It's to realize no one has any particular perspective. Now, in, in a. Even that's No, it's, it's no, no. There's a trick here. It's, like, it's to realize, not that I realize. That the realization occurs. He's making me try to be technical. I have to be. Well, no, it is one. Hmm? It is. Who's looking? That's a very good question. No one's looking. 
I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, in the ultimate sense, I could say consciousness is looking. You know, or I could say God is looking. I could use other terms here. But if, but if we really want to try and stick with this and see how this is different from other approaches to knowledge and experience, it's just that. Instead of saying, oh, I'm going to switch from this perspective to this perspective, to this perspective, or this perspective, or high or low or whatever, it's to get rid of perspective. Or any, I should say, get rid of any fixed perspective whatsoever. They realize that all perspectives are relative. That, you know, you can look at things from a Hindu perspective. That's great. You know, you can look at it from a Christian perspective. You can look at it from this perspective or that perspective. It's not a question about finding another perspective among all these perspectives. It's about seeing the relative nature of all perspectives. These all sound like systems, like systems of beliefs. Buddhists has a system of beliefs. So that's a perspective. I yeah. understand that. I don't mean that. I mean, right. I mean, just uh, like, forget the systems. That, like, who's looking? Like, ah, but that's great. The systems are only valuable to guide you towards a teaching. I mean, a, a practice. Uh, and, you know, the, uh, particularly Buddhism is very good about Buddhism is very good about that. They say, you know, my, the Buddha said, my teachings are just fingers pointing to the moon. Don't get stuck on looking at my finger. But, but forget about all that intellectual stuff. It's still, this is what I mean by how radical it is. It's still about, like when I said, when I looked at this and I said, you know, I don't see God here. This, I have a perspective, right? And it's not about having a different perspective on the book. It's about realizing that the perspective, that this is a book, is itself relative. And so it's not abiding in any particular perspective. But your perspective then is that. <laughs> no. Well, we're going to be trapped by language well, at a certain no, point. So, someone who's unenlightened, it's a little hard to see how you would have uh, no anything other than some viewpoint or point of view. You know, and maybe it'll move if it moves around and I see it this way different state of mind, different emotional feeling, different spiritual senses. You know, things change what their appearance changes. Right. Right. And this is uh, part of a very valuable part of doing practices to loosen up perspective. And if you do spiritual practice, particularly meditation stuff, your perspective starts to change quite a bit. You know, your actual experiential perspective on things. And that's very valuable because it loosens up that conditioning, you know, and you begin to say, oh, there are other ways to see things. But the end of the path isn't an arriving at the right perspective. Yeah. It's, it's at some point, just you see through all of that. Like they disappear. They don't quite disappear. Uh, uh, let me give you... questions. Yeah. You know, it's, it is beyond words, ultimately. And words are for guiding. But I'll give you one, I'll give you one quote, personal example. Uh, I've been reading about shamanism lately. Uh, shamanism in relation to the, as far as we know, the, the ancient cultures and traditions and, uh, for a research for a book I'm doing. And I was on retreat. And one of the things about shamanism in shamanic worlds, things are, uh, things, phenomena are much, uh, less solid. And there's always this transformation and there's personality behind everything. So it's very common for people to become foxes and, you know, deer and so forth and so on. And I was, uh, and then I, uh, my students and I were on retreat. And there was this um, uh, dining area building behind me and a porch, a deck. And I was down below. There's some steps coming down. I was sitting down in the, this parking lot. And there were some uh, peacocks on the property, three peacocks. 
and they were uh, they hung they hang around this big old uh, oak tree up there, and uh, I looked up and I noticed that three of my students were standing on this porch, and I was just sitting there, and suddenly these three peacocks swooped down in front of me. And I started, this were my students. You see, I looked back up, and sure enough, my students were gone. That proved it. <laughs> now, I, in that moment, and this wasn't something I thought up, you know what I mean? It just occurred to me. That's the closest I've ever come to understanding shamanic perspective. You know what I mean? I experienced it that way. Uh, and it was wonderful. It was delightful. That's not a true perspective in the world. But it's no more or less true perspective than any other perspective. See what I'm talking about? So it's not about finding the shamanic perspective or the Buddhist perspective or anything like that. But in uh, during the course of the spiritual path, it's very valuable uh, when your perspective can start to change like that. You can start to see that things aren't... You don't have to experience everything the way you've been conditioned by your culture to experience them. You know? And then, because then when everything gets loose, and, when, and particularly when you give up the idea, finally, of finding the right perspective... You surrender that idea, that, that grasping, do you know what I mean? Uh, spiritual path is really about surrendering, you know, surrendering this, these ideas that it could be this way, it could be that way. Finally, you just surrender any idea about what it could be. And that it's, the Hindus say it very well. It's, it's as obvious as the amalka fruit held in the palm of your hand. It's just been there all the time, right in front of your nose. Just, you know, nothing special, Zen would say, in one sense, you know. It's a big cosmic joke in a way, frankly. You, you just laugh, you don't know how you could ever have missed it. I mean, uh, but, uh, you know, part of, part of a teacher's job, that's a very good question, and it's, a, and it's a very good way to start searching. Part of a teacher's job is always to be pulling the rug out from under uh, people. When they get fixed on, I'm going to meditate till I get to a certain state because that's, you know, enlightenment. Well, it is an enlightenment. There are values, certain states have value, but they are never themselves enlightenment. And, um, so it's frustrating sometimes for my students. Uh, uh, yes. Um, if, if the idea is to get rid of all perspectives, uh, what, what happens to morality and ethics? Let me just correct that. Not get rid of, see through. They all become relative. Morality, in my terms, is um, morality is relative in relation to the absolute. It's not relative in the way we talk about relative, everything's relative today, you know. Oh, it's all, it's, they're all human values. So, you know, your culture's as good as mine, your idea's as good as mine. It's all relative. Uh, a friend of mine brought home one of these um, from uh, Lane College. It's a college up in Eugene. One of these uh, courses on, uh, what is it called, the values evaluation or something. Anyway, you go through and you judge what your values are. There's no attempt to teach any value because we couldn't do that. And how you stick up for the value, how strongly you, you know, will you risk a job for it? And you're supposed to evaluate. And if you get high scores, then it means you are very strong in your values. And that's implied by the text a good thing. Well, I went through and I, I ran Hitler through this, this, uh, little thing. He, he was very moral. I mean, he really knew his values very much behind them. I don't believe that. Uh, values are relative in, but they're relative in relation to the absolute. And by that I mean that you cannot ever take one uh, specific teaching and, and apply it in every situation. So, for instance, not to lie. It's a very good working precept. 
It's not about changing society. It's about for yourself. If you really try to implement not to lie, you'll learn an awful lot about yourself. But there will be situations where you, uh, where it's not um, moral to not to lie. It's moral to lie. And another, I mean, a stereotypical situation, but if uh, Nazis were coming down the street and you, a Jew was hiding in your attic, then they said, you know, do you have any, seen any Jews lately? And you said, oh yeah, I can't tell a lie. One's right up my attic. That's not moral. You see what I'm talking about? The key, though, I can tell you this. I think there's one key principle you can always apply that is the, the thread that relates you to the absolute and it is selflessness. Selflessness. So in that situation, it's more selfless to lie. In fact, you're putting yourself in much greater danger and risk, you know, by lying to the Gestapo than telling them the truth. If you follow selflessness, that will guide you through any situation. Then you can take uh, moral, you know, statable moral values, precepts, as general guides for most situations. And also things to try to implement quite precisely in order to, to teach you something. But uh, f for my money, uh, morality is, is, uh, is flexible in the sense that it, because it's always pegged to this, to this business of selflessness. And what is selfless in different situations will always be flexible. But you're trying to discover selflessness. There's, it's not an accident. It's not you should be good. It's selfless to be good. I mean, it's, you know, it's good to be selfless. Like God said, it was good to be selfless, so you should be selfless. It's trying to understand the truth of this, and in terms of morality, it's trying to act on this truth so that you overcome the fear of protecting, enhancing, uh, guarding the self, which is what drives and motivates so much of our lives. So if you start practicing selflessness in little ways with people, you, you start to see, wait a minute, uh, you know, the sky is not falling down here. Quite the contrary. Not only is the sky not falling down here, I'm free. I, I'm, I'm freer here. You know, I'm not always looking over my shoulder and guarding. I'm, I'm starting to give. And this is where love and compassion and all that come in. And this, the reason love and compassion, I didn't, like, only a limited amount of time tonight. The other great side of all mystical traditions is teaching love and compassion. It's the one thing we all experience in our lives where there is that selfless motivation. It's usually in our lives mixed. But when it's really strong, when it's really, when the gates are open, it washes the self away temporarily, at least, you know? And so this is, uh, again, you follow that. This is the road to selflessness. I would say from all mystical traditions, uh, all roads lead to selflessness. And this is why love, compassion, all that. And this, this is what, from, from my point of view and a, and a mystical tradition's point of view, morality is really all about. And the social effects of morality are, in a certain sense, secondary. It's great. It works out that way. Do you know what I mean? The more selfless people are, the more they help each other, the, the, the better the society becomes. But it's not about you should because. It's about if you want to find out about this teaching, try these practices. Jesus said this all the time. And people have a complete misunderstanding about Jesus' teachings. He said, you know what? He said, they're talking about love. He says, I tell you to love your enemies. Why? What will it profit you to love your friends? Everybody loves their friends. Try loving your enemies. You learn something. You will. And I tried this practice. If you read my book, I, again, I, I said, okay, what does this teaching mean? I picked a guy I worked with that it was a real son of a bitch. And I took it as my teacher. And the Tibetan Buddhists say this particularly. You meet an enemy, that's your teacher right there. And I would come to work every day. And I stick, stuck with this for months. And this guy, I mean, he was really awful. And 
I'll tell you right away, it changed my whole relationship with him because I no longer was going to work angry and, and at him and, you know, saying, gee, I wish I didn't have to work with this person. I wanted him to be at work. I couldn't wait to get to work that day because I wanted to see what would happen, you know, between us. And, and I went through a lot of f false ideas that I had about what it meant to be loving him. I tried to generate loving feelings of compassion, you know, and then he'd do something really obnoxious. <laughs> and I'll tell you what I found out. Um, it's a longer story, but to cut it short, uh, we were on a, a disastrous picture together, and his, his reputation stuff was on the line, and it was really going down the tubes. And I walked in. I was leaving the set. Uh, I was just the executive on the picture. He was the producer, and I was leaving, and I went to his hotel room to say goodbye, not because I wanted to, but you had to do those things, you know. And it was uh, in, in Florida, and it was one of those really hot, sweltery Florida days. It was a scene right out of Tennessee Williams. His, his air conditioning had broken down and he had this fan going and he was hot and miserable and I looked at him and I thought, gee, this poor son of a bitch and I, we're brothers. We're just like each other. We're suffering, you know? It wasn't that, you know, it, it, I stopped judging. I stopped seeing as somebody else the enemy. I saw that our, you know, we were in the same veil of tears together. And that's the first inkling I had of what true compassion is about. It's not about pity or anything else. It's about it involves humility. It's realizing, gee, the man is really suffering. I'm really suffering. We're, you know, but you know, again, it's something you you learn from experience. You know, so this is how. I'm just giving you one example. Maybe I'm going answering the question more than you wanted to know. But how you take a moral precept and turn it into this investigation about reality and about self. You see, and and use it that way. Yeah. Not a strange one, maybe, but what's the point of survival? If you look at all of life, you see that it's extremely bent on survival. If you have a garden, you see what length the plant will go to to, you know, save its last seed. You know, and, and so there's life, and so then when you talk, you think, well, why? You know, when the, the point is to get out of it, you know, it's like. Mm, I don't say the point is to get out of life. That's again, I think that's a misperception. That's, again, this idea you can escape from life. The, Hinduism puts it that way, escaping from the wheel of samsara. But the wheel of samsara is a, a deluded world, not the real world. This is why in, in Mahayana Buddhist teaching, samsara is nirvana. Nirvana is samsara if we would only see it. And in the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas, uh, Jesus' teaching is, uh, the kingdom of God is spread upon the earth, only we don't see it. So it's not escaping in that sense, getting out of it. Now, this idea of survival, though, is very important. We are, have this, because we have this belief that we are a, an entity, and then we look around and we realize everything is impermanent. And then we're driven by this idea that we can somehow survive, and the longer we survive, the better, and so forth and so on. And it becomes, it, instead of being a relative thing, it becomes the absolute that rules our lives. That's what's that's what creates the suffering. Now, supposing we looked at it another way. Supposing we looked at life as a great drama. And uh, if any of you have been to a play? You go to a play, and everybody in the play has to do their best in the play. They have to throw themselves into the part. Even the villains. At the end of the play, a villain who's given a, an actor or an actress who's given a lackluster performance isn't going to get a very big round of applause. Do you see what I mean? So it's not about not living life 
completely and fully or escaping or, you know, survival. It's about, it's about hanging on to things past their time. And plants don't do that. Or we read in if we think they do. When I watch the fall and leaves falling, to me, I see, it's just metaphorical, please don't take me literally, it's everything rushing back to their God. It's like, you know, it's like in a gesture. Uh, other metaphors you can use to uh, are music. You listen to Mozart, and you think, ah, that's a lovely phrase. Let's keep that phrase. Play it again, Sam. What happened to Mozart? You got did you know? And that particular note, that's so lovely. Let's hang on to that. Ding. And now it's a ding. Stop already, you know? So this grasping on to life, grasping on to... Uh, something that is in its nature is impermanent. It's, you know, subject, as Jesus said, to moth and rust. We, this is where we set our hearts by, stuff that's subject to moth and rust. It's not not to live life fully, but it's to recognize that it's all impermanent, not to be disappointed and upset when it turns out to be what it is, because it is, you see. So again, this is part of the insight that you have on a, way, on a path and part of what frees you. So when you really... Not only just know intellectually, we all know everything's impermanent, even the stars are impermanent, but when you can begin to experience life as impermanent, your experience all phenomena, you're seeing in the moment it's impermanent nature, how it flows through consciousness, you know, the breeze, the wind, you know, all that. Then you don't have this high expectation that everything's going to last. Then you're not motivated to save everything, and quite the opposite. And one other way I can put this, again, I don't want to flog a dead horse here, People often ask, well, what, what would be the point of living if you're enlightened? I mean, why go on living? What is the point of living to begin with? And if we think of it this way, um, we live normally, under this misperception, we live in order to become happy. Almost everything we do is motivated to become happy. From going to a good restaurant tonight, you think, oh, boy, if there's a new Italian restaurant in town, I heard it's really good, I'll be happy if I have a taste of that fettuccine, you know? And you get there and it's terrible and you say, ah, you know, what was that? I'm going to spend all this money too. And then you're unhappy, you know. Uh, or everything from that to getting a good job, to finding your soulmate, to, you know, you're going to, uh, I don't know, you can't move much up from here, but <laughs> Pacific Heights or Sausalito, I don't know what you people dream about. It's going to make you happy when you get that, you know, houseboat in Sausalito. Now, supposing you live life this way, and everybody's had some experience of this, you're at home alone, and you, some music's on the radio, or you put on some music, and it's this wonderful, I like Zorba the Greek, you know, and your legs start moving, and you find yourself just dancing. Now, you're not dancing to become happy. You're dancing to express your happiness. If somebody came and said, what are you doing with I trying to become happy? You'd say, I feel so happy. I'm dancing, you know. This is what life is about. Life is an expression of happiness that's already there. It doesn't need to be found. In that sense, it doesn't. It's not some state, or you know, even subtle things that you find it'll make you happy. It's simply realize they're already happy. Why? Go on. Yeah. That was the question. Oh, that was the yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. It seems to me one of the big things here is participation. That is really one way of naming the goal. Uh, participation in the present moment. Oh, one of my favorite teachings is again a Tibetan Buddhist teaching where it says um, the teaching is uh, the seed 
Uh, it's like, they, again, they, they're very earthy. It's given to a farmer. The teaching is given as the seed, but the seed is no good unless you have a field to plant it in. And life, our life, with other beings, is the seed we planted in. Without other beings, we cannot possibly walk this path. Friends, enemies, lovers, you know, foes, people we like, strangers, people we dislike, they're all potential teachers. And it's all about participating in that sense, you know. It's all about engaging and not running away, not hiding, you know. Now, having said that, you know, in any spiritual path and in life and in all of life, you watch your plants, there's this rhythm of withdrawal and return, withdrawal and return. And uh, so there's absolutely also a place for going on retreat, going on vision quests, being alone in the mountains if you don't want to do a formal retreat, you know what I mean? And it's interesting, people are always criticizing mystics, you know, well, they, oh, you go off the mountains and you worry about your own soul and all that, you know, well, uh, first of all, most people who say that are pathologically locked into this one note way of approaching life, you know? It looks you, everything you know, withdraws and returns. Even the moon, you know, from our perception, withdraws and returns. But they don't want to ever withdraw. You know, it's like if they, they're going to miss something, you know. <laughs> if they're in their back, they're going to miss something. Uh, and then the other thing is when people criticize mystics, you know, I think, oh, sure, okay. Uh, what about Jesus? I mean, the man spent his life engaged with people, you know, so much so they killed him for it. Buddha spent, you know, he went off for six years on his spiritual path. He spent the rest of his life with some, you know, I don't know, 50 or 60 years teaching. Our civilizations and cultures, and this is another, when you get to this question of, are these people really mad? Remember this one. The, they have said something that struck, really struck to the hearts of people. From, from the very get-go of human civilization, Buddhism, Christianity, Islam, you know, they're all, that doesn't mean everybody understood their teachings or, you know, but something's in there that shaped human civilization, the way we've evolved. And that at that root have all been mystics and this teaching. And it's been, I mean, you can't imagine human society without religion. And you cannot imagine religion without mysticism and mystics. So yes, it's very much about participation. Yeah. Story about the, uh, the realization of our search would bring us to the same place that the mystics got that there is no bull. Oh, thank you. Um, I perceive of God as a dreamer. Very, very well put. Now, let me take this seriously. This is, uh, particularly in the East, this is a very prominent teaching. It's meant as a pointer to a practice, not as an idea to rest on. Try and see what does this mean, and, and it's phrased that way if you read carefully, particularly in Buddhist texts, to think of life as a dream. Try and see in what way life is a dream. Uh, how much real substance there is in form, inexperienced, you know what I mean? Try to uh, see, particularly at night, falling asleep, and if you can develop a kind of lucidity, how dreams arise, the forms and images in dreams, what really distinguishes them from the forms of our own experience. And you begin to get the sense that everything is, I would put it, and this is, again, a way, a more relative way of putting it, as a form of consciousness. The content of things ultimately is consciousness. And they are modifications, as Hindus might say, of consciousness. So it's a teaching 
that is actually directing you to try to see something about your experience as it unfolds. I'll give you one example of this. Um, this is a little bit analytical, but if you take a, um, uh, well, anything, but I, I like to use a wool sock. Uh, take a wool sock and hold it up and look at it and say, well, this is a sock, right? And then you, uh, let's say this sock is all uh, woven out of the same piece of wool. So, you know, you, do, you unhook the, the knot and you start to pull it and it all comes out a piece of string. What happened to the sock? See? And you begin to see the sock was just a form of the string. There is no sock there. It's dreamlike in that sense. You know, it's an image. It's a form. Oh, well, now we got down to the wool. Well, you know, take the wool apart. It's sheep hairs, right? So the wool, the, the, the thread was really just a form of something. We keep going and you can do two things at a certain point. Uh, you can go like the Greeks did, and you get down to atoms. We, you know, never seen any atoms in our culture, but we believe in them. But whatever uh, we learned to our horror that atoms can be divided. We used to think that in the 19th century they couldn't. Hiroshima, we found out they could be. But anything, it's just a form of uh, an atom is just a form of subatomic particles, and subatomic particles are just a form of something all the way it's form all the way down. Or if you're interested, I don't want to get off on this one starts learning something about quantum mechanics. Because in quantum mechanics, consciousness comes back in to the description because of the collapse of the wave function. You know anything about quantum mechanics? Okay. okay. It ties in very well with that. In that sense, uh, you know, everything is a, in that sense, a form of the wave function that is temporarily there by the observation, by the determination of the, of the form. Truly speaking, quantum mechanics, you know, people are startled by this. They never believe me. But, you know, what you're not looking at isn't there as a physical thing. It's a, it's a wave function. I mean, it's described by a wave function. It's not even a wave. It, it collapses the minute it enters consciousness. Well, that gets right to the question of who am I? <laughs> yes, it does. Some form. Go look into that form. You see, examine it carefully. In the, ex in the experience of it. You won't come up with anything. That's why it's like a dream. You try to seize some a unicorn you saw in your dream. There's, there's nothing behind behind it. Nothing standing behind it. It's just a form of consciousness. I'm beginning to wonder whether people's limits of absorption are being reached. <laughs> I, I want to give you your money's worth. I want, on the other hand, if you started feeling you like to move around, yes, Joe will be here, and we can. Thank you for questions. Sure. Is that acceptable? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much, Joe. Right. When I went to China a number of years ago, when, when somebody does something in front of an audience, they clap back, and I thought that's lovely. So I, you've been a wonderful audience, and I clap right back.